night And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flight The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation I bless the rains down in Africa I personally feel that is one of the greatest songs of all time. Why? Because of its lasting power. We're about to hit this song's 40th anniversary. It was released in 1982. And I bet that your kids out there are listening to this song because they've heard it on Scrubs. They've heard it in South Park. They've heard it done on Family Guy. Or the best, if you want some entertainment, go listen to what Justin Timberlake and Jimmy Fallon did uh, with this song. It is a classic. Uh, Africa by Toto. And as I go through this, uh, quickly just to tell you the, the kind of the concept of this song. Uh, this was written mainly by David Page and Jeff Procaro. And they finished the melody and lyrics, they said, in just about 10 minutes. It was one of those things that it just came to him. In fact, he said, I sang the chorus out as you hear it. It was like God channeling it. And I thought, I'm talented, but I know I'm not that talented. Something just happened here. So after that little 10 minutes of writing this song uh, and having the melody and the lyrics come together, they then spent the next six months refining the lyrics before they even showed it to the rest of the band. And what's funny, as monumental as that song has become, other members of the band didn't really like it at first. Uh, they described the song as dumb or just kind of an interesting little experience experiment. And uh, Steve Percaro said that uh, some of the lyrics were really goofy, particularly the line about the Serengeti. Of course, you know, as sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. You know, as we look at these lines, it is kind of goofy to think about what does this song mean? And Basically, David Page said that at this time, he was watching a lot of National Geographic documentaries and shows. He had never been to Africa, but he romanticized this continent and talked about how badly he wanted to go there and wrote this song. It wasn't about some, you know, romantic love interest of just this curiosity about the continent of Africa. And he said in his own words, he said, I watched a lot of these, uh, d d these documentaries on African plight and suffering, and it had a lasting impact on me. It both moved and appalled me and the pictures just wouldn't leave my head. I tried to imagine imagine how I'd feel about it if I was there and what would I do? And he said, at the end of the day, I was just a white boy who was trying to write a song about Africa. But since I'd never been there, all I can do is tell what I've seen on TV or what I remember from the past. And why I'm giving that is the intro today's episode is that is exactly what I am going to try to do. As a white boy who has never been to Africa, I plan on going. In fact, there's a chance I'm going to get out there this summer. More to come on that later. Stay tuned. But after the last couple interviews, it really got me going of I wanted to learn more about specifically South Africa and the history of apartheid and Nelson Mandela. And I mentioned this in the last episode, but let me tell you why I think today's episode is going to be such a good learning experience for all of us that are trying to find the middle. 
I had the interview with Gordon Cooper. You listened to that. That's the episode before. And in fact, if you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to go back and listen to that before we jump into this. It'll set the scene in a really good way. But in some time in our interview that I didn't release, um, I'm going to share you clips of that. Share with you clips of that today. We talked about apartheid and Nelson Mandela. And if you don't know that very well, I'm going to go through all of that history today. So hang with me for just a minute. And I had always had this image of Nelson Mandela as a hero, as a legend, as someone that, you know, we look up to that ended segregation in South Africa, was the first black president there, and is someone that is celebrated, mainly because that's the main story that the, you know, the media or the narrative around South Africa and the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela, that's what it's always been, that's what I've known, that's what I believed. Then I start talking to Gordon. And Gordon has a much, much different view on what happened in his country in the middle of something that he lived through. And I couldn't argue with him. Why? Because who am I? I'm like David Page from Toto. I'm just the white boy that's never been to Africa, just, you know, romanticizing about this idea. But now I'm talking to someone who was in the Marines during the African Bush Wars, who was on the front lines, who saw what happened as apartheid came to an end. And he gave me a very, very different image for his thoughts on the things that went down. And actually, he described Nelson Mandela as as a traitor, as a murderer, as someone that wasn't necessarily a hero, who might have had some good impact, but found a really rough way to get there and was influenced very, very heavily by the Communist Party. And so... I leave this conversation, my mind's just going nuts as I'm thinking about all these, you know, kind of this change of mentality that I've always had when I've, from what I've thought before. And then here's where all of this comes together. I went and actually, I was playing golf with Rick Highland, who was our guest from the episode before, after we had recorded our episode, he's episode 53, Gordon is episode 55. After we recorded our episode with Rick, I said, hey, let's go play golf. So we're out on the golf course and I start telling him about this interview I had just done with Gordon. And I didn't know that Rick, his entire family is from South Africa. His mom was raised there. He lived there for a couple years in the 80s himself. And I told him, kind of what Gordon had said. And he's like, well, I really disagree with that. I believe Gordon uh, Nelson Mandela is a hero. Um, I don't agree with a lot of the feelings of white South Africans in that time. And we have this really interesting conversation that kind of blows my mind as well. And here I am in the middle. And here's what I want to point out. How often do you have conversations with people that you really respect and admire that have more experience or knowledge on a topic than you, and they totally disagree on something. It happens all the time. So here I was, you know, Gordon, I love that man. You saw how, how good of a relationship we have and how interesting I think his story is and his life experience. And then Rick, obviously someone that I respect so much, and I'm hearing for both of them, and they're looking at us the same situation, and they're drawing completely different conclusions. And this can be confusing, right? And I think in a lot of ways, this is what a lot of us experience when we talk politics or when we talk history or just general interactions with human beings in general. When we talk about the same situation, but pull totally different meanings from it. 
Well, this is when your own personal critical thinking has to kick in. It's time for you to inform yourself. It's time for you to think things through because your opinion can't just be based on the last person that you talk to. Or your personal opinion can't be based on the most passionate or the most convincing person that you've ever spoken to about a topic. What I know, and especially through this cause of going through this podcast, is I know that the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. And it's our task to find that middle rather than trying to decide whose team should I be on. Because I feel like I'm on both Rick's team and Gordon's team. But on this topic, well, it's hard to do both. Can the middle be found? Well, I took that challenge. So over the next week or two, I started into some personal research into the history of South Africa. And what's nice is it's something that I don't know a ton about in the first place. I haven't, I don't have really strongly held beliefs or convictions about this. So I was able to look at it from more of this, uh, you know, unbiased perspective that is kind of unique when it comes to a lot of contentious topics. And I want to walk you through what I did with this deeper dive. And hopefully we can draw some parallels with this experience here of how we personally can approach lots of different issues or situations or experiences in life and how we can find the middle. Now, by the way, saying that you're in the middle, that's not a cop-out. Not picking a team necessarily isn't you just staying neutral and not being passionate about something. I believe, like I said, the answers are somewhere in the middle and we got to find that. So here we go. Let's talk brief history about South Africa in general. South Africa's history is very similar, uh, at least when the European uh, influence starts to come involved to United States history. Um, during the period of colonization and imperialism, there were settlers from you know, uh, from Holland, the Dutch, the British, uh, Spaniards, Portuguese, they took over the world, right? And, you know, American history comes from people that went across the Pacific Ocean and found themselves on the American continent. And at the same time, there were a lot of people that went south and went all the way, sailed south to the bottom tip of Africa, found themselves in, you know, what we would call Cape Town in that area, and started to settle and colonize what we now know today as South Africa. Now, what's interesting is even when we talk American history, we talk about how Columbus discovered America. We talk about how the, uh, you know, the Europeans and the British founded America and founded these colonies, which is true. But the part that we often forget to mention is that people were already there. You could sit and look at Christopher Columbus and be like, he didn't discover anything. There were already people there. And in fact, the dude was lost. You want proof of that? Christopher Columbus's whole goal was to show up in India, and he you know, believed that the world was round, and I bet we could get there if we go the other way. And he gets to the American continent, and he actually believes that he's found himself in India. Why do you want, and how do you prove that? Well, what did he call the people that were there? Indians. They weren't Indians. They were Native Americans, what we call them now. And the European colonizers, 
have a very, very interesting task now of they are settling this new land, but they're coming to a place that people are already there. Now, I think we definitely have whitewashed as an American society our history um, with the American Indian. Uh, you know, we tell the cute little story of Thanksgiving, of the Thanksgiving feast and the Indians bringing corn and showing us how great this was. And while there was times of collaboration and working together and trade, there was also just as much that was ugly, that was, you know, violent in a lot of ways. And probably one of the darkest spots of American history besides slavery and the slave trade is what the Americans did to the Native, to the Native Americans, to the Indians, uh, specifically the Trail of Tears. If you want to uh, kind of feel your American pride, take a little bit of a dip, go study the Trail of Tears, which maybe we'll do at some point in this podcast. But this was a time where, you know, as these colonizers came to new land, figuring out how to negotiate and deal and live with and live among the natives was a tricky, tricky thing to do. And the story was no different in Africa. As they arrived in Africa, they had all sorts of tribes that were already living there. And there were a part of these uh, these European colonizers that started to go north in Africa. Now, this again is similar to American history. In American history, they show up on the East Coast and there's westward expansion. And the more west they go, the more they start having these interactions with uh, with Native Americans. Well, in Africa, they find themselves starting at, le- at the bottom south tip and the more adventurous, more courageous explorers head north and interact and are confronted with a lot of these African tribes. Um, in the last episode with Gordon Cooper, you ta- he talked about how his ancestors were a part of that Dutch Afrikaans group that was brave and exploratory and headed into the African frontier northward. And to kind of give this story now that we've set this phrase, uh, set this scene, Gordon talked about a story that, uh, you know, maybe we could compare to the Thanksgiving Native American story here that uh, is pretty entertaining. This kind of blew my mind as he told me this. Uh, Take a listen. In some cases, they got on very well. In other cases, they didn't. So, for example, you have the case of, um, I don't know, as you've read up on the histories, um, um, you have um, a guy, Pitratif who is out in KwaZulu-Natal area, it comes across the, the, the Zulus, which are the most powerful of the black tribes, and probably the most ethical of all the black tribes at that point, you know. And um, he negotiates with their, their chief, um, Dingon, and he says to this chief, listen, we want to buy certain lands. And Dingon says, okay, I want so many cows, so many horses, so many guns, so many of this or whatever. So he does this, and then Dingon invites them to this huge, big um, feast. And he says, why don't you guys come over, and I want to give a feast for you guys. So Petrotif goes, he go, he's in his late 30s, he's got a son who's 15 or 16, and he goes with a lot of his key leaders and men who are leaders of this party, this Dutch party that was moving north. And they go in, and as they get there to this kraal, Petr, um, Dingaan says to them, no weapons in the kraal, you know, because it's a threat to the king. So the weapons get put down, collected, the guys go in and they have this big feast. In the middle of the feast, Dingaan stands up and says in his language, kill the white lizards. 
So they all come, they grab these guys, and they've got knopkiris, which is like a big club. They club them to death, they spike them. So their, their way of killing, they would, they would throw you on the ground, bend you over, ram a spike up you, and then spike you, and you, and you, and, and, and you sit on the spike for two days about while you die. Oh my. And then Petra Tiff's son's murdered in front of him, brains bashed out, and then they take him and they skin him alive. And after skinning him, they cut him open and they and they and the Gansler held his beating heart in his hand before he died, you know. So now you have that kind of thing happening. Now you can imagine the retaliation. And so 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 what, what they found was was that these people couldn't work together. And then apartheid began. Kill the white lizards. Wow. That's intense. Uh, and something about Gordon telling that story in his South African accent and uh, knowing Gordon just makes that story even more engaging. But this really paints this picture for how difficult it was for these European settlers to live among these African tribes in Africa. Now, we could go into a whole podcast on its own about, you know, imperialism and colonization in general and how strange that idea was. And you could say that's unjust in general, and I probably wouldn't disagree with you, but it's happened. It's history. How do we work through this? Well, you can imagine when things like this were happening and it was as violent and as bloody as it as it began, then people started to realize that they needed to separate themselves. People feel the most comfortable around those that are like them, that look like them, that talk like them, literally that speak the same language and uh, and also finding ways to you know, try to keep the peace and often keeping the peace is staying apart from each other. We've all heard that quote before that the be- uh, that fences make for the best neighbors. Hey, there's definitely some truth to that. Now, we look at what happened then in South Africa and they started to legalize and actually institutionalize this whole concept of living apart from each other. Now, apartheid. I've used this word before. In the language of Afrikaans, it literally means apartness. It was a system of legislation that upheld segregationist policies against non-white citizens of South Africa. So what happened is the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948. Its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. So the segregation was already taking place. In fact, in 1913, there was uh, the 1913 Land Act that was passed by South Africa just after it had gained its independence, which basically kept in place that it was illegal for black Africans to live in certain places, that they needed to segregate and literally live apart from each other. Apartheid. And then in 1948, it went from just becoming like practice that everyone did and understand and knew to being institutionalized. Now, it wasn't just where they lived. This also, uh, you know, the laws talked about interracial marriage, making that illegal. And not only that, you know, the basic framework of apartheid is really interesting because they classified all South Africans by race. And it wasn't just black and white. It wasn't that simple. It actually created four different categories. Uh, including Bantu, which were black Africans, 
coloreds, which are mixed race, and then white, uh, typically, you know, those of European descent. And then the fourth category, which they called Asian, which really meant Indian or Pakistani. That was added later on. So what's so interesting is legislation in this country was based on race, always. These types of legislation at times split families because if they had a white parent and a black parent, then they were then put in the category of colored. And now they didn't have a home in either one of those places. Uh, I love Trevor Noah. If you're familiar with who he is, he is a comedian, South African comedian that actually took over for The Daily Show on Comedy Central when Jon Stewart left. Um, I've actually been a fan of The Daily Show since I was in like middle school. I loved Jon Stewart and uh, was really, really sad to see him go. And then it was like, man, who is going to fill these shoes? And Trevor Noah stepped up. And I, like a lot of people, was was very, uh, you know, I, I didn't accept this guy necessarily as the new, as the new John Stewart, but he is incredible. And his story is he was mixed race born in South Africa. He had a white parent and a black parent, which left him without a home. In fact, his book is called Born a Crime because he literally was born of, of an illegal practice of this interra uh, interracial relationship that wasn't accepted. Um, I'm actually going to share a couple clips from Trevor Noah later on in this episode. I, I love that man. I've had the chance to see him twice live. And I love how he takes his experience and his knowledge of history and globalism and brings it to his comedy. What's wild when you think about the history of South Africa is we use that word history, but this isn't that long ago. I mean, for example, we had Gordon on the last episode, who's 50 years old, who grew up in this system, who was an adult when this was overturned. And you hear some of these practices now, and they seem so barbaric. They seem so ancient, like we can't even relate to it. But then all of a sudden you put different lens on and you realize, well, this was only like 20 to 30 years after America. And we're so great in America, right? Was going through its civil rights battle and segregation of schools. And, you know, the civil rights movement was based on coming down against these segregationist policies. But South Africa definitely took this further. What's very interesting to note as well in South Africa is that the white population was only about 20% of the country's population, only about one in five people were white. Yet the government was completely run by whites. Uh, those that weren't in the white category couldn't vote. They couldn't uh, live in certain places. Now, uh, they also had different times where in the white areas of town, in these white townships, blacks could come in and work and have the jobs that, you know, a lot of times the whites didn't want, but they actually needed a work visa to come into the area and they had to be out before dark. And, you know, Gordon, I asked him about this and he said how, you know, this was just a way of life that he would find himself around black people, but not at night, that that was something that was kept very, uh, kept very segregated. Now, in all fairness here, he also told me that whites weren't allowed into the black areas either. And he said, 
Now, that wasn't an issue because you didn't want to go into the black areas because you would literally be killed. It was that separate. It was that divided. And often you can look at pictures of South Africa like it's just an interstate freeway, a highway that's separating these you know, black areas or colored areas with white areas. And it's so crazy to think that this didn't happen all that long ago. This was just a way of life. It was accepted and they they got through. And like Gordon talked about in the last episode, he talked about how in his experiences, for the most part, the blacks and whites got along under this system. He doesn't look at apartheid as something that was all that negative. Now, of course, you would look at that and say, well, you know, having blacks not have the chance to vote, isn't that an issue? And his response was, well, blacks had, the tribes had their own governments as well. It just really was this whole philosophy of apartness and living maybe in the same place, but being completely separated, hence apartheid. This was just the way of life. Now, at this point in the story, I want to introduce Nelson Mandela. Mandela was born in 1918, 30 years before the institutionalizing of apartheid took place. And to really show here just how much a part of you know apartheid this culture was uh, is actually the story of how Nelson Mandela got his name. I'm going to play a clip here where you're going to hear Nelson Mandela telling us telling this story, and then you're actually going to hear Trevor Noah. Um, I pulled a couple of these parts. Uh, Trevor Noah did a uh, celebratory segment on his show for Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. One of the things that he says is pretty funny. He says, you know you are epic when people are celebrating your birthday after you are dead. And uh, in, in 2018, it was Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. And Barack Obama and dignitaries from around the world went to this celebration event. And, uh, Nelson, and Trevor Noah, at this point, did a little bit of this uh, segment on his show celebrating his life. Listen to this. When I went to school, the lady teacher, Miss Mdingane, asked, what is your name? I told him my African name, Khorikhlaj. He says, no, I don't want that one. You must have a Christian name. So I say, no, I don't have one. She says, you are from today, you are going to be Nelson. That's how I ended the name Nelson not given by my parents. Wow. Can you imagine how Mandela's parents must have felt? <laughs> Their kid left the house as Rulishasha and comes back as Nelson. <laughs> like his dad must have been so mad. He'd be like, they called you what? I'm calling your teacher right now. Hello, this is Gata Mandela. No, your name is Jeremy now. Ah, they got me too. I love that clip, especially with Trevor's uh, breakdown of that. But imagine being in a society where your name, someone could just change to assimilate you as a part of their society. And I think this is a bigger thing that is talked about here when it comes to colonization, because you know, colonization is interesting. It's one thing to go conquer a city or conquer a land because you go just take it over and kill everyone in the midst. But colonization, you actually go somewhere and then you say, hey, this is our way of life. This is how we do things. And then you turn everyone else into you. Because in your mind, 
you are superior. And if you think, man, just those crazy Africans that did that. No, like this is what happened in America as well. If you look at, you know, assimilation of the Native American into European American early days. So what happens next? People start fighting back. They want changes in this system and you don't blame them. They're going, apartheid is not something that we can even fathom in a modern society. And to try to overcome that injustice, people start fighting back. Nelson Mandela, in a lot of ways, led this charge. Now, here's where this can be really gray. The media, common, uh, you know, the, the common narrative is that these protests started peacefully and then were reacted to with violence. And so then in reaction to the violence of the oppressive white government, these protests became violent, became ugly and brutal, but that was necessary in order to bring about, you know, the change that needed to take place. And a shock for a lot of, you know, Americans or people now studying the history of South Africa is you have the vision of your, in your mind of Nelson Mandela as this really, really sweet old man. This sweet old man who is so wise, who is so well-spoken, who just has this presence and this spirit about him that you can feel. But then you watch clips and you read things from him uh, during the time of of resistance before he went to prison at Robben Island. And it is a much more radical feel. Now, the other place where this gets murky is this was also during the period of time that you had these two battles of political ideology. After World War II, the thought was, is the world going to be taken over by democracy and capitalism, or is it going to be controlled by communism and totalitarian regimes? Hence the Cold War. Hence after World War II and the world when Berlin was split in half, an Eastern and Western philosophy here. It's what led to the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Well, all of this affected Africa as well. The Communist Party had a plan for Europe. They had a plan for Asia. And they had a plan for Africa. And Nelson Mandela was tied to the Communist Party. Whether you want to call him a communist or not, I will put that up to you. But there definitely was a plan to have communism spread, which obviously is, as Americans, this was something that, you know, was fought very, very heavily against. And this is a big part of the African Bush War that we heard a little bit about in the episode with Gordon Cooper, because this is the war that he fought in. Now, before any of that ever happened, these protests started to become more and more ugly, more and more violent. Nelson Mandela was leading that along with the ANC or the Afri African National Congress. And Nelson Mandela was put in prison. He was in prison at Robben Island for 29 years. So while a lot of this political unrest and violence and upheaval is going on, Nelson Mandela is in prison. 
educating himself even further, reading, you know, there, there's movies that are made about his time uh, at Robben Island. And it's a very interesting period of time. Well, as South Africa becomes more and more pressured by the, you know, the world and is seeing the writing on the wall that the system of apartheid cannot live and cannot exist in a free democracy. It can't exist in the modern world. They're realizing that times are going to have to change, that apartheid is going to have to come to an end. And what is fascinating is that while Nelson Mandela is in prison, he is working with the South African government to start to enact policies to end apartheid. In 1989, the South African president, F.W. de Klerk, lifted the ban on the ANC and called for a non-racist South Africa. He broke with the conservatives of his party, and then on February 11th, 1990, he ordered Mandela's release. Um, Once Mandela was then released from prison, uh, and this is from history.com here, he says, after attaining his freedom, Nelson Mandela led the ANC in its negotiations with the governing national party and various other South African political organizations for an end to apartheid and the establishment of a multiracial government. Though fraught with tension and conducted against a backdrop of political instability, the talks earned Mandela and de Klerk the Nobel Peace Prize in December 1993. And on April 26, 1994, more than 22 million South Americans turned out to cast ballots in the country's first multiracial parliamentary election in history. And an overwhelming majority chose the ANC to lead the country. On May 10th, Mandela was sworn in as the first black president of South Africa, with de Klerk serving as his first deputy. Now, I'm going to unwrap and talk about a lot of that here in just a minute, but I want to talk about this little blip here in what, you know, we commonly know as our history of, you know, during this time in between Mandela's release from prison and then his election as president of South Africa, History.com uses the phrase, though fraught with political tension and in this backdrop of political instability. Well, Gordon Cooper was on the front lines of this political instability and the tension and the violence that was occurring. And he tells a story here that it's going to be a little controversial. I'll tell you right now. But I feel that it's something that we have to realize and we have to listen to because mainly the lessons we can learn from the power that the media has in controlling the narrative. Here it goes. But then what happens is Mandela gets released and suddenly this wave of terrorism hits the country, not on the whites, on the blacks, murdering each other like you can't believe it. So you have the Zulu and the ANC, the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. The communists picked the ANC and they built up the ANC and they then used the ANC as their vehicle to, to, to take over the country. And so what they did was they unleashed a war against the black Zulus and against the Khorza and the whatever. So you have this, I mean, black people died in their tens of thousands. And I mean, I, 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 I'm going to send you a documentary that you need to watch. It's about an hour and a half called Tainted Heroes but it will open your eyes to, 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 to how he worked. So you have this incredible stuff going on. And then what they would do is they would say, the white government under them, look how our people are suffering. Look how they are dying. Now, I personally stood in front at a black township where there was a big uprising. They were killing each other. 
They called the Marines in. We're standing there um, at this riot. And they're burning tires and they're creating all kinds of havoc. And we're trying to create the peace and they're killing innocent black people. And the next thing while we're standing there is international media with their cameras on us and on the black people. The kids run out, 10 years old, 12 years old, little black kids with AK-47s. And they just start shooting at us. We're standing there now. Little kids, now they can't shoot properly. There's rounds flying everywhere. Now, imagine this now. You're a soldier. You're told, hey, stop this here. These, these, these innocent black people being killed. We're coming in to help protect them. You're standing there. And next thing you start to see your friends dropping with these guys shooting at you. What do you do? So people start shooting back. And, and, and I know. I didn't shoot at anybody. I shot into the ground. People were trying not to. It wasn't the case of let's kill kids. These are military um, armed people shooting you, killing you. Guys start firing back. The kids turn around and run. As they turn around and run, that's what the news media picks up. <laughs> Little kids running for their lives. Pictures of white army guys white shooting. shooting yeah. them. And then what happens is one kid got killed. Only one. They didn't try and shoot those kids. One kid got killed. And they've got the mother holding that kid and the tears and they're interviewing her and the whites killed my kid, my innocent little boy. You know, she's, she's sitting with a kid. That's a haunting scene. And regardless of your politics, I think we all have to acknowledge the power of what gets talked about and how it gets talked about and how the narrative can shape the way we look at world events. There's always two sides to every story. Uh, I actually, I, I say that, and I just saw a quote once that was so right up the alley of this whole millennial in the middle thought. And it said, there's three sides to every story. There's your side, the other person's side, and the truth. And I thought that was so interesting because what I really started to learn in this conversation with Gordon and the conversations I've uh, now had with other people, Rick included, in the own research, in my own research that I've had now, as I've looked deeper into this thought, is division really is the enemy. We have this need as a society to pick sides, to prove our side is right. And the other side is wrong. And when that happens, that's when progress is stalled. That's when human atrocities happen. That's when mistakes are made. And I can't help but look at this example and this story that Gordon Cooper, he, he lived through this. He saw this. I can't help but draw parallels there with what our nation is going through currently. When you look at the unrest and the division that is happening right now, it, it really begs the question to be asked, is, is that division being manufactured for a cause? Is that narrative trying to push us towards something else? I'll touch more on that in a bit. I don't want to go off on that ta tangent. Let's close the book here on the story of Nelson Mandela in the end of apartheid. So Mandela is elected president in 1994. And what is so admirable, ad admirable, excuse me, about Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. is how then he led. Because he could have very easily just said, 
you know what? Y'all threw me in prison for the last 29 years. We are in power now. We have been the ones that have been oppressed at your hand. Now it's time for us to to kind of call the shots here. In fact, Trevor Noah in that little bit, he says, actually, I want to play this. The way he does this Nelson Mandela impression is so great. Watch what Trevor Noah says right here. Now, Nelson Mandela's story up to that point was impressive, but it's what he did after he came out of prison that transformed him from a leader to a legend, all right? Because when he became South Africa's first black president, he reconciled the country and he insisted that white people be a part of it. Right? And you realize this is a black country and he's the first black president. He could have easily just said, I'll give you white people a 10 minute head start. <laughs> I'll give you a 10 minute head start. I, I just love that because it really could have been his attitude coming out of prison and now being the one that's in charge. But he insisted that the whites be involved in the government. He knew that the only way that this would work and be sustainable is if government was multiracial. And I think in one of the coolest moves, he made his, you know, basically what we would call our vice president, he called his first deputy, um, the former South African president, uh, de Klerk, who ended apartheid and is the one that freed him from prison. It's the two of them that actually together won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work that they did. And that to me is where I think Trevor Noah said it well, this is where he became a legend because of the attitude of what he did after this. Now, I want to play, I asked for Rick Highland to call in and leave just a couple thoughts on the voicemail hotline of what how he feels about Nelson Mandela so we can show both sides of this here. And so uh, take a listen to what Rick said. Nelson Mandela is one of my personal heroes and I've read all his work. I know his background and history before going into prison and 29 years in prison and then of course what he did as president of South Africa and, and getting released from prison and there's a couple reasons he's my hero. Uh, one, you know, the quote I think that represents his life best is the idea that I never lose, <clears throat> either win or learn. And I think that's a mentality that that leads to excellence. Um, you know, my understanding from reading the history is that he was involved in the African National Congress, which was backed by uh, the Russians before. Uh, served uh, 29 years in prison and uh, really was one of the people that helped liberate South Africa uh, against apartheid, you know, and obviously my family is is white South African. And uh, so I understand both sides of the story, but uh, what he did, uh, to my knowledge, out of the 50 African countries, South Africa is only the, the least amount of civil unrest. I know there was unrest the least amount of civil unrest and and certainly not civil war like the majority of the African countries experienced uh, between, you know, moving away from the British or French or even, you know, inter-tribe uh, rivalries and violence and civil war. So uh, I respect what he did. He's one of my heroes. I think, uh, you know, he sacrificed a lot. Here's another reason why Nelson Mandela is my hero, the principle of forgiveness. And I've read his book, Long Walk to Freedom. I've obviously seen his uh, movie, um, not just Invictus, but the movie about his life. And um, 
imagine this, that you're, and as I mentioned, that there probably was some illegal activity, which we don't condone, before he was put in uh, prison. He was trying to stop a very bad policy in apartheid, and he did it in illegal means. We don't condone that. But imagine being in, and I have toured Robben Island with my family, um, where he was in prison for 29 years. Imagine being in there for that long and coming out with forgiveness and love for his captors and an example, and uh, many of his captors um, also respected him greatly for how he conducted his life uh, in prison and after. And uh, so, you know, we believe in the principle of forgiveness for both him, and uh, he practiced it in spades. He could have come out, become president of South Africa, and just had a, a bloody vicious civil war, but in, in, instead he preached patience and forgiveness and change for the change he was trying to do for his beloved South Africa. So, and I think he did his best to try to represent both white and black and all the different uh, tribes and factions within South Africa. I think Rick put that really well of teaching the principle of forgiveness and how important that principle of forgiveness is in creating progress. So, Let me wrap all this up. Let me tell you where my head is at. Because, you know, obviously I talked to Gordon who ties this so much to the power of communism, feeling like his country was duped, feeling like the end of apartheid didn't solve all of their nation's problems. Um, And then hearing, you know, what the media or Trevor Noah or my guest before, Rick, like you just heard, how we typically view Nelson Mandela as such a legend. Well, here is what I've learned from this experience here. First off, I am against communism. Now, why? I'm not against communism because I'm on Team America or because I am just Mr. Pro-Democracy, which of course I am, right? But that's not my reasoning for being against communism. My reason for being against communism is because I know my history. Communism is never works. It never has, and I feel it never will. It is an oppressive political ideology that is is shown often to be good for those that are on bottom. I don't feel that it truly is. I will always be on the side of capitalism and democracy versus communism and a totalitarian regime. If you go back, uh, listen to episode 37, where I talk about my experience in China for the first time and walking around Tiananmen Square and just feeling the exact opposite feeling that I feel on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And that's something that I I feel, I, I know, and I, I've studied. And so I don't love... Nelson Mandela's early ties to communism. I definitely think there is some serious, uh, some serious weight in the fact that the Communist Party wanted to have influence in Africa and create a division. That they incited violence. That they tried to create political upheaval for some of for some of those goals. Now, as far as Nelson Mandela himself. Uh, I think it's really hard to look at people of the past and question them for actions that we might view as immoral or violent because we, we often, in order to really move the needle and in often to really 
bring about big time change, there sometimes have to be drastic measures that are taken. And there is no doubt that Nelson Mandela moved the needle in a major way. I do feel that his personal philosophy and his personal approach changed over the years. I think there was a softening, a softening that took place. And you would expect that. He was in prison for 29 years and trying to figure out how do you solve these issues. And he came out of prison, in my mind, a better person than he came out and maybe a very, very unique experience that prepared him to be a leader to try and make that transition happen in the most effective uh, and in the most positive way as possible. When I look at this story, I think when it comes to history, we are just used to, we have been conditioning to looking at history and wanting to know before we read who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Who are the villains? And who are the heroes? It's comfortable to know that because once we know that, it gives us a framework to view the story under. If you view this whole story in Gordon's mindset, you're going to find the story that you want to tell. On the flip side, if you view this history and this story from Trevor Noah's thought process, of, you know, putting Nelson Mandel on a pedestal, you will find that too. A key factor in truly finding the middle and finding common ground and finding balance is trying to avoid that tendency to have to find who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad. Because I think as a general rule, people aren't as good or as bad as we want to make them out to be. The middle can be messy, but so is life. And I think this mindset is something that affects the way that we critically think. When it comes to politics in America today, we it's impossible to view politics without the framework that you already have in place. Think about it. If you're a hardcore conservative, you would rather watch your news from Fox. If you are really liberal, you'd rather watch MSNBC because it is going to not question what you already feel you know or believe or have been told. It's going to confirm that truth. It's why we struggle as a people communicating with those that don't agree with us. Because we struggle finding common ground. We know that we could look at the same story, but pull totally different conclusions or lessons from it. But that's okay. Because we all have the right as free-thinking individuals to look at something and have different takeaways. And this goes back to that same thing I've always talked about on this podcast. You know, rather than reading someone's reaction to a speech or to an event, Try to just find, well, what happened? What was given in the speech? And rather than having my feeling be based on someone else's reaction, what do you think? What do you feel? 
We shouldn't be so focused on finding villains and finding heroes because when we do that, what we're also doing is further dividing us. We move the needle when we work together. And of all the lessons that Nelson Mandela taught us as a society, that might be the best. The system of apartheid was one-sided, it was otherized, it was segregated, it was apartness. Apartness does not work. Now, when we work together, it might be messy. Mistakes will be made. Violence might ensue. We're not going to find a perfect compromise all the time. But working together is what allows us to take those steps forward. And we can't find the middle if we don't work together. So this is an interesting thought for me. I really enjoyed this exercise and I hope you did too. And I, I mean, I don't really have that strong. I don't have an opinion that I need to really share with you on this. My opinion doesn't matter all that much. But it's the fact that I went through that process, and I hope you might do the same and apply this same type of practice to all sorts of different issues or current events uh, or situations that you experience in life, just outside of politics, too. I think this is a really important life skill. I want to end this episode with a quick clip from an interview that Nelson Mandela did with Oprah Winfrey, the best interviewer of all time, in 2000. Like, take a listen here. You end up coming out of prison and there is no bitterness. How is there no bitterness? Well, I hated oppression. And when I think about the past, the type of things they did, I feel angry. You have a limited time to stay on earth. You must try and use that period for the purpose of transforming your country. That is money. I'm going to leave it there. I'm done. Thanks for joining me on this process here. You know, today I think I felt like David Page from Toto. I was the white boy who's never been to Africa trying to talk about the history and trying to find lessons that we can learn from the past. I've never been to Africa. I plan on going. But when I do get there, you better believe that I'm going to land, you know, in the Serengeti and I'm going to have on repeat. And the first thing I'll do, I bless the rains down in Africa. All right, the fumes are getting to me. Until then, clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck